Access to the Days Gone preview event was made possible by PlayStation. Andrea Renee here at Days Gone Preview Event, and I'm sitting down with John Garvin, the creative director at Bend up there in Oregon. So thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Hello. Hey, yeah, awesome. Great talking to you, Andrew. So the last time we saw each other, as I mentioned before we sat down, was at the Judges Week event right before E3, and I only got just a kind of tiny slice of the game back then, but I was really impressed with what I saw. So thank you so much for giving me a much meatier slice today. Yeah, right? And the game has come a long way since then. I mean, it's like we've put so much more polish and and performance enhancements. So, uh, you know, I, I hope you enjoyed it more today than you did back in Judges Day. Oh, absolutely. I think I'm kind of like a kid in, in a playground. I don't even know which attraction to go check out first. There's right. just so much to do. Um, and I don't even kind of know where to start. I kind of made a joke before we started recording that I have this long list of notes that I've been keeping. Fire um, away. Fire away, you said. Okay, yes. so here we go. Um, how about let's start with one of the first questions I had. And it was, um, I didn't quite know how to frame this, but it almost seems to me that this game maybe has a bit of an identity crisis, for lack of a better phrase. I was trying to pin it down. Is this survival horror? Is this action adventure? Is this a combat RPG? Is it kind of this hybrid mashup of all of those things? How would you describe what this game is? I would describe it as a narrative-driven, open-world action game. So it encompasses everything that you just said. And I hope what we've done, and when you get to spend some more time with the game, I hope this becomes really clear, is it's really the sum of its parts. Yeah, there's survival elements. Um, there's action elements. It's a shooter. There's stealth. There's melee. It's an open world, so you can explore. Um, but it's but it all centers around Deacon St. John. So it's about this character. It's about his journey. And over the course of, you know, a over 30 hours for the Golden Pass, how long it took me to beat the game last time I beat it. Uh, you're going you're you're gonna to go on this journey with this character, and it begins, and it has a middle, and then it ends, and it's hopefully, um, hopefully it's, it's going to be amazing. Well, we did finally get to see a little bit of insight into who Deacon is, more than we had seen in the previous trailers that you guys have released, because uh, just a few weeks back, you released this wedding trailer. Yes. And we got to see more of Sarah and Sarah and Deacon's relationship and kind of get an insight as to where the emotional backbone of this story is. And I noticed that there's quite a few cutscenes, at least in the part of the game that I've played so far. Can I expect that to be pretty liberal um, with narrative cutscenes sprinkled throughout the game? Yeah, and not just liberal, but they're all at that level of quality. So one of our goals from the very beginning, because we had done we had done work on um, on an Uncharted game, we did Golden Abyss for the Vita, and you know working with those guys on how to do performance capture and get that level of sort of performance out of your actors and get characters to come to life is something that uh, we were super excited about. And we you know we originally asked ourselves for Days Gone is like could could you do that in an open world game? 
you know, could you make there be sort of, sort of tonally consistent and have the characters be introduced in a way and have their stories be introduced in a way that make you care about them? And, you know, a lot of that just comes from the production value. So having just, you know, the the emotions coming through in the, what they're saying without necessarily their words doing the work. It's got you got to see the expressions in their face. And I think that that's one of the things that our tech guys have sort of exceeded all expectations, that the quality of the cinematics is really high. And therefore, the story and the quality of those story beats is really high. And you are going to find that throughout the entire game. Through all 30 hours. Oh, no, the quality certainly looked amazing, and I'm so glad you brought up Uncharted because there's clearly an in- inspiration or an influence there, um, at least from my perspective as a gamer. Obviously, how deep that goes, only you guys at the studio know. Um, but I was really impressed by the way that the gameplay goes in and out of cutscenes very quickly. It seemed like the, sc- mi- uh, the load screens were very minimal. What kind of a technical challenge was that for you? It's one of our biggest technical challenges, and it's something we're still going to polish and we're still working on even to this day as we're getting ready to launch, is just trying to get as little friction between the player and the experience as possible. So, yeah, we do have some load screens between, you know, the cinematics and gameplay, um, and, you know, I think we're, we're doing everything we can to make those as, as, as short as possible. Well, they were very short during my playthrough, so so good job. If it's going to be even shorter, that will be impressive indeed. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the multitude of mechanics that I ran into during my play session here today. Um, one of the first things I wanted to ask about was storylines. I noticed that there are several different storylines throughout the game, and you have a progression bar for each of them. Can you explain to me how those storylines are going to work and if they're going to kind of intertwine at some point? Yeah, so the you know so storylines are super important to Days Gone, and that's a feature that we bro- that we put in because we really wanted to help the player understand how all this stuff sort of fits together and works together. So again, as a sort of narrative designer, one of the things we really wanted to do was figure out how do we tell a compelling story in an open world where the player can get distracted and can lose track of what they're working on and what they're doing. So you can have a storyline. So one of the most important storylines is I Remember. And that's where Deacon is dealing with his past. So we have these flashback missions where you see how he met Sarah, for example. And you saw in the intro that, you know, he suffered this loss at the very beginning, you know, when he had to make this choice between, you know, hey, do I stay with my friend Boozer? Do I go with my wife? What am I going to do here? And so we kind of explore how that impacted Deacon's character throughout that storyline. And it's something that you will, you know, touch touch on and off for the next, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 hours of gameplay. And then, you know, to, the storyline is designed to help you sort of follow that flow and, you know, remind the player, hey, oh, that's right. This is this is something that Deacon is, is thinking about all the time, you know, because at the same time, you have a storyline where you have to help, you know, this 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 young survivor that you rescue. I don't know if you got that far in your playthrough when you go to Marion Forks and you find and you're basically said, hey, there's a survivor there. Go find her, rescue her, bring her back to this encampment. So that starts another whole storyline where you kind of track what happens to this person over the course of the game. And, you know, so again, you'll come back to that storyline um, hours and hours later. And so the storyline sort of helps you sort of keep track of all these disparate things. And yeah, some of them intersect. In in important ways. It's interesting that you bring that up because, I mean, when you talk about an open world, players all approach open worlds in a different fashion, right? So would you say that your intentions as a studio is for people to kind of intersect their progress on stories? Or if I decided to just go down one storyline, will I be able to do that? Like if I wanted to do one storyline to completion? 
so the stories are, you know, the, it depends on the storyline. So some of them are linear. So like the I Remember storyline is part of the Golden Path, and these unlock missions and jobs and tasks in a specific order. And that, and it's because obviously I feel like you know stories have to be have an order to them, and you can't just you know jump into the middle of a storyline and understand what's going on. Other storylines are really about your progression through the open world. So when you go to Crazy Willies, for example. Um, or yeah, let's give you a, a better example. So when you burn out the nest in the in the Belknap Tunnel, that you know there's a whole there's a whole storyline where you can now go and find all the infestation zones in the world, and you can go and take them all out. And again, it makes the world a safer place, opens fast travel, but it also helps clear the storyline that has rewards of its own. So you'll see like, oh, there's Crazy Willies. That's a nest zone. I should I should go clear that out. As a player, you never have to do that ever. So it's you a, can just leave them. You can just leave forever. it. Yep, yep. So if you if you're not into you know doing the open world content, which is ambush camps and survivor rescues and horde killer, right? So hordes are a huge part of the game. These are all things that the player can just sort of ignore, or if they are interested in learning more about those storylines, they can go and do that content. Well, I've intentionally been avoiding all the hordes that I've seen so far. Which I, is smart, by the way. So <laughs> I'm not quite I, confident I enough yet. I highly recommend that because <laughs> the hordes are part of the world. And, and from the beginning, you're going to run into them. Um, you don't have to take them on. And if you don't have to, I recommend you don't. Wait until you've leveled up your character and you've upgraded your magazine sizes on your weapons and, and your stamina, right? So that's super, super critical. So that's something we're, we're trying to tell everybody who plays Days Gone is avoid the hordes until you're ready. I also put aim assist on, and I do not feel bad about it whatsoever. <laughs> oh, no, totally. And that's one of the things we absolutely encourage is, like, that the skill trees are built for players to, you know, help their play style. It's like if you want, you know, if combat focus is super valuable. If you want to do range combat from a safe distance, um, I highly recommend it. So crafting is also a very important part of combat, speaking of which. And I noticed that the crafting system is is quite intense. Is there a specific um, workflow that you guys had in mind where you're like, we want this to be part of the crafting system and this we don't want to be part of the crafting system? Because it kind of feels like I'm still learning exactly how deep the crafting goes. It's really about survival. So everything ties back into this notion of, number one, is it grounded? So, you know, are you going to be able to actually build this weapon in real life? Like, could you take a baseball bat and somehow attach us, you know, a lawnmower blade to it and create a weapon? And the answer is yes, you could. And so everything is sort of grounded in reality. And then we wanted to say, okay, well, we're in the high desert of Central Oregon. What kinds of stuff can you find there? You know, so you find beer bottles everywhere. Um, and, you know, so crafting is literally that. It's like, okay, what does the player need most to survive? It'd be weapons, it'd be medical supplies. Um, and, you know, that's kind of what we put our focus on was, was just that. Like, if as a player, what, do you, what are you going to need to survive? Making sure that stuff was available in the world. I'm glad that you brought up that idea that it's grounded in realism because when I got the crossbow and I had the like, hint come up about how when you fire the bolts from the crossbow that gravity will affect their fall off, I was like, hmm, this is really fascinating to me because ultimately this is a fantasy world with these freakers and whatever happened with this infection and this outbreak, but there's still so much grounded in realism. As a creative director, like, how do you find where that line between this is still a video game, but we also want this to be as real as possible? Like, where do you put that? You know, it's funny because I think it, it's cross all entertainment types. One of the things I learned a long time ago was that if, you're, if you have a fantasy element in your world, you get one. 
That's what it is. So you you know, it's like if you're if you're building a world that's based around magic, you get the magic. And in our world, it's the freaker virus, right? So that's the one thing that is outside the norm of you know the realm of people's experience. And really, we wanted to create something that was totally relatable. So we have you know we have freakers in the world. Um, but they're not crazy, giant, tentacle-based creatures. They're like things that, you know, you can imagine this virus actually doing this to make this rager bear look like this. You know, so it's, everything is kind of based on that. We have one thing, and that's the freaker virus. Everything else is pretty much grounded in reality. Okay, that makes sense. And the more that I think about what I've encountered so far, um, I haven't yet had my suspension of disbelief broken so that's good to hear so high because, five. <laughs> yeah so and you know and one of the things that you know jeff ross the game director really pushed for and i and i really appreciate it is is keeping it real but at the same time not making it work right right so you so we do make you worry about fuel consumption on your bike but we don't want it to become such a pain that you know it feels like your second job we want it to be like oh okay this is something i've really got to be mindful of and be worried about and i can upgrade my bike and and get away from those worries a little bit but at the same time it grounds it in reality it's not like you know a lot of open world games there's no fuel management at all and you just you know you can just whistle for your car or whatever and it comes back um and we wanted, we wanted it's not to keep, such a bad thing right <laughs> and we just wanted to make it more real keep well, it real i get to keep that survival element going yeah. right i'm so glad you brought up the bike i mean you guys have extensively talked about how you consider the bike to be like an additional character in this game and what i thought was really interesting in the demo that we got to play today is that we started out with what I have to imagine as close to a fully loaded bike yeah. and then you take it away yeah. and then we have to start from scratch. Is that intended to give the player an idea of what they're working towards? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's because, you know, in terms of the story and one of the things we've also worked really hard to do is just make sure that the story is always lockstep with the gameplay so that it's not arbitrary. So, you know, Deacon would not be two years into a post-apocalyptic nightmare and be riding on something that was going to be a struggle to you know to survive. He would he would have it already built up and tricked out. So you know we had to take that away from the player early on because we want that progression. But at the same time, give you a taste of it and say, yeah, you know what this this is going to be really cool again once you get back to that point. It's all about the grind, right? The grind, yes. Uh, so speaking of which, let's talk about encampments for just a minute. So one of the first camps that we get to see is Copeland's camp, and we get to see the mechanic, the merchant, bounties, the kitchen. So clearly a lot of uh, boxes that you have to check by going out and doing activities in the open world. And the thing that I noticed that they're all kind of based off of is this trust system. Can you explain to me what the trust system is and how it works? Yeah, so every encampment in the game has its own economy. So you can earn trust at Copeland's camp, and that's basically these, nobody trusts anybody in this world um, because just the nature of the world itself. It's like you know, there's no law, there's no civilization, and the open world, the farewell wilderness, is really, really harsh. And everybody out there is trying to kill everybody else. So when you go into a survivor encampment and they already don't trust you, and we we see lots of backstory. Like Deacon's been here for a while, and he's already had run-ins with these people, and maybe he's done some iffy things in the past. You know, things that we get into later uh and he's got to earn trust with copeland in order to you know in order for them to you know be willing to sell him parts that are really rare really hard to come by so yeah earning trust super important you have to do that at the hot springs camp as well and all the the other camps and not just trust but also credits 
So you're, you know, so you have to earn the ability to buy things at these camps, and that's really the core of the open world gameplay loop because all of the open world content, like bringing in freaker bounties, which are the freaker ears, that proves that you're killing freakers and making it safer in the world, and they pay you for that. And the same thing with doing jobs for them or taking out ambush camps because they're, you know, attacking their supply routes. All that stuff ties into making the world safer, and therefore they reward you for that. So I have to imagine then that you're going to get unique items at each of the different encampments to kind of incentivize the player to want to build trust with each individual encampment? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the uh, the economy team has worked really hard on that because the uh, Copeland's camp, for example, has Manny, and therefore they focus on bike upgrades. A later camp you're going to get to later in the game has also has bike upgrades, but they're, they're different. You know, they'll have bigger gas tanks. Uh, but they'll have a line of things, you know, that only can be purchased at Copeland's camp. So if you want to get those things, you know, like they have different types of, you know, decals or color combinations or whatever. There's all sorts of things that are unique to each camp. Ooh, I haven't even gotten into the customization yeah, items you yet. Can totally, you can totally make your bike look in a way that Deacon St. John would hate. Well, then I think this is going to be my mission. Well, listen, I have so many more questions for you, but I would love to end on something to do a little bit more with, like, the theme of the game. So when I first heard this game announced, I didn't quite know what the title meant, but I think a lot of us out there kind of made some educated guesses. But then when I hit the pause menu in my demo today, I saw 738 days gone or whatever number. I don't know if that number is exactly accurate, but the reason I bring this up is because I think it was really fascinating for kind of kind of hit me in this moment of like, oh, it's all about like whatever that like ground zero date was. Yeah. Would you say that thematically throughout the game, this is going to really focus on Deacon looking back to where he was? And if yes, does it mean that he has nothing to hope for? I, that is an awesome question. And I think that, uh, so thank you for picking up on the days gone number. Um, and that's one way to interpret that. And I definitely think that the the intro <clears throat> is where you can really, you know, find out where Deacon's heart is. You know, and I think that that's something we're just not talking about yet. Yeah, well, obviously we want to leave, you know, a lot of that narrative stuff for player discovery, of course. But, I mean, in such a a world where, you know, you think about post-apocalyptic anything, whether it be like nuclear fallout or infection, what have you, and I think you see these communities of these characters trying to hold on to a semblance of what was or their reality or, or what to hope for in tomorrow. Yeah. So, like you, you mentioned, the wedding trailer. Have you seen the wedding trailer? Yes, I have. Absolutely. So that you know, that, I think that kind of goes to the core of it. It is about loss, and it is about grief, and it is about sorrow. Um, but but you know, and again, without getting into spoilery details, it's also about hope. And you know, I think as you, especially as you get further into the game, and you see Deacon interact with more people, and you know, early on in the game, I think he's a little reckless and maybe a little nihilistic almost and you know his best friend asks hey you got a death wish what's going on and Deacon sort of feels that way but eventually he turns that around in a way that I think is that is relatable and I think that's really the key again grounding everything in reality it's like can we create a character who is who has something that in something in his past that has made him you know, sort of filled with regret, but at the same time gives him some reason to sort of want to keep struggling to survive. 
Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. If you could please remind everybody listening to the show when they can get their hands on Days Gone. April 26th, Days Gone is going to be available. Can't wait to have you play it.